Hello, Theologizers. Welcome to Theo Bros Podcast, episode four, all about the incarnation. Exciting stuff. Or in Theo talk, the hypostatic union, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And also joining us today is our dear sister, Tori. Woohoo! So now it's uh, Theo Bros and Sis, I guess. Two Theo Bros and a Theo Sis. (laughs) It's Theo Bros and God's judgment upon you. (laughs) Tori's smarter than both of us combined, so she's going to come and own. Tori's a very bright uh, fellow, or bright lady, I should say. Um, (coughs) And... uh, she don't you mean a bright wellow a wellow and uh, she always has a lot of good questions a lot of good things to say i'm going to be playing the foil today i'm going to try to give bread and ben as hard of a time as possible that's my role all right tori's going to be putting on her tin foil hat and um, throwing anti-jesus conspiracies at us that's what we want we want to be challenged bring it I play the reprobate today. Okay. Well, I mean, obviously I can play nothing but an elect. (laughs) So I think this is a really important topic because both people outside the church, right? Well, they'll often charge this doctrine, much like the Trinity, which obviously is related to this, with incoherence, right? There's some sort of contradiction in the idea that God became man or that an individual could both be fully God and fully man, but there seem to be like inconsistent attributes there, right? And there are also um, other, more, more in a minority group, but Christians, um, Unitarian Christians, who deny that Jesus was God. They think he was the Messiah, but they don't think he was God. And they'll also level this charge against the Orthodox doctrine. So I think it's a really important topic in terms of clarifying how this is not a contradiction. Of course, it's a mystery, um, but I think there, we can motivate the idea that it's not a contradiction and also that it's very important theologically for other doctrines and for Christian life. So I just wanted to start by briefly reading the original council or conciliar definition in the Council of Chalcedon in 451 that really hammered this out originally and all Orthodox Christians in the East and the West have subscribed to this in the main, this definition of the idea of the dual natures of Christ. So it's pretty brief. So here's what it says. It says, therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin. As regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before all ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of nature is being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person in subsistence. 
not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. There's the official creedal definition. What is that from again? Uh, the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Okay, so that is the official official. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fish. Definition of the church. Yeah, it's an fish definition. So now that we have the official definition solidified, Tori, how does the how does the idea of the incarnation sit with you? What are your thoughts on that? Does it bother you? Do you feel like you're able to accept it? Are there other aspects to that idea that you feel like are difficult to accept? Brett, what are I'm playing the foil today. Well, foil so, away. So I'm I am going to make sure that it bothers me. Okay, well, we'll do tell, Tori. <laughs> okay. Um, so the first issue that can arise is um, the idea that Jesus was tempted. There's a verse in the Bible that says, if you're tempted, do not say God is tempting you, but you're only tempted when um, you're pulled away by your by your uh, evil desires. Or it, it kind of defines temptation in kind of that sort of way that you're being drawn to or you're desiring something that is falling short of perfection, whether it's like a conscious sin or just something that is falling short of the mark of perfection, which I think most Christians would say that Jesus was perfect in every way. So I guess the question is, how was he, uh, how was he tempted? Did he desire sinful things? Did he have an inclination towards those things? And how does that work with him being fully God? Mm -hmm. And do you remember the verse from Hebrews, Tori, where it explicitly says he's tempted? I forgot exactly what it says, but... He was tempted in every way and yet without sin, I, yeah. I believe. Right. Um, and of course, even if he had the external temptations, it, it wouldn't be, still wouldn't be considered temptation if he didn't have a draw towards it. And also, temptation means that you're desiring something that God would not desire. And so if he's fully God, can he desire something that is against his nature, against his perfect nature? Can he desire something on any level and then not desire it at the same time? So that's kind of like... Um, Contradiction. Yeah, they're, they're kind of, they're at odds with each other. And so how do you reconcile that? Yeah. So how do you think about that? Brett? I mean, that's a good question. Um what are my thoughts on that? I, f I feel like that question obviously gets right to the heart of the God's humanity and God's divine nature, both at work at once. And how is that reconciled as far as the humanity side and something that every human being goes through, which is temptation, enticement to do something that's not of God, to do something that falls short of the divine will. And my first thoughts go to God's solidarity with the human condition. I mean, the Bible says that God is the, the fullness of humanity. He he's like the representation of what it means to be a man, to be a human. In, in a, in a sense, God is the, the physical universe. Like he, he is the word, like, we're all living within God. So 
or within Jesus. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Yeah, no, no, not, no, no, I, what I, what I mean is, is in the beginning was the word and the word was God. So in a sense, heresy. With, within the Trinity, Jesus is the harnet word of God, if that makes sense. The agent of creation. Yes, that is who Jesus is within the Trinity. He is the God. He is God made flesh, um, made visible. So he needs to be in solidarity with all that is flesh, with all that is matter, because he is the logos. He's the beginning and the end. So part of nature of the world with within its current state is that it's fallen in that the image bearers of God, human beings are tempted and they have a free will and that they're inclined to fall short. So in a sense, God needs to be in solidarity with that. Not that he's going to fall short, but he needs to be in solidarity with that aspect to our free will, to our condition. Tell me if this is a simple way to formulate how you're kind of responding to the objection. Is what you're saying is almost like, well, the fact that he's in solidarity with our temptation is itself a perfection. Mm -hmm. So the objection is basically saying... Well, it must be imperfect, right? Because to be tempted is to be imperfect. Yeah. You're kind of saying, well, if you look at it from this other perspective, if the only reason you're in a place of temptation is because you voluntarily are choosing to enter into solidarity with humanity's temptation, you might say it's it actually is a perfection from that vantage point. Is yeah. That yeah, that that's a good way to put what I'm what I'm trying to get at. That God dives in to everything about us as creatures as image bearers as human beings he he dives completely into that in other words he's not willing to go to, to a certain degree of solidarity with us and and not go any further he goes to the ends of the earth he goes as deep as you possibly can go and in my mind that is is a sign like like you put it um, as far as summarizing what I'm trying to get at, that it is a sign of of a perfection, of a a perfection in love, mm -hmm. that love would go as far down as possible to be in this mystery of solidarity with his beloved creatures. And part of that is to experience temptation. I mean, I understand that's not a that's not a that's not like a definitive answer to rebuttal to Tori's question. It's still a good question, but. I guess that's more the angle I would I would go at when when thinking of how does that human nature of temptation reconcile itself with the divine nature. So we have to define and more look at what is the the divine nature. What does it mean to be perfect? What does it mean to be God is love? And I think you could make an argument that God that love God equals love. Love would be going to the ends of the earth and going into full and utter complete solidarity with the brokenness of his creatures to bring them out of it. Yeah. So that's an angle I would come at. What about you, Ben? I, I like that approach. I think it's, I think it's, it's interesting because it's, 
we tend to, the objection kind of comes from a place of, well, we already have this independent conception of what divine perfection must mean. Yeah. And then we try to use that to kind of question Christ's perfection. But it seems like the way that you're coming at it is kind of like theologians that are like very Christocentric, like Karl Barth or like T. Yeah. Lawrence, who I highly recommend to people. What does perfection mean? Exactly. You basically say everything we know about God in some sense has to work backwards from Christ. So we can't have some like a priori conception of what God must be like and what perfection must mean yes yeah, so it reminds me of theologians like Karl Barth and uh, T.F. Torrance who take this Christocentric approach um, and basically say listen right Christ exegetes God we shouldn't come to an analysis of Christ's divinity from some a priori conception of what divinity is or must be right but we have to work backwards from Jesus who is the perfect image of God right everything everything else is just shadows we have to let how Jesus um, existed and his person and his work define God and define divine perfection. So it seems like you're, you're that kind of radical Christocentric approach kind of resonates with what you're saying, that, that kind of approach. I think there's some other things we can say philosophically, apart from the solidarity issue, although I, do, I think that's obviously important and a good approach as well. So I think we, we need to be careful about what we mean by temptation. Um, yeah, can I just say something real quick? I think when addressing a lot of these questions, and a lot of these problems. I, I think what we're doing, not that we're the best defenders of, of, the, of the faith and of these questions, but I think it is a good approach, kind of what we're doing now, from what I hear where Ben's about to go, is to take a step back and, and start looking at what our words mean. Yeah. And what are the definitions of what words within our argument that we're taking issue with? And then we have to make sure that we define those properly. Right. Go ahead, Ben. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of what you're doing as well is you're, you're kind of challenging um, an implicit assumption about what perfection must mean or entail. Right. Yeah. Well, I think we can say some similar stuff about the idea of temptation. So just like in any other context, words can have slightly different meanings in different contexts. So Tori quoted the passage in, from scripture about how men um, are only tempted because they're carried away by their evil desires. But then if we go into the book of Hebrews and it says he was tempted in every way as we are, we need to stop and be careful to think that the exact same sense of temptation is being used in both contexts. So I think we can just ask ourselves an easy question. Do we think that the author of the book of Hebrews meant to use the term temptation in the same sense as that other passage of scripture? Because then if he did, then the author of the book of Hebrews thought that Jesus had evil desires. But that just seems like clearly not the case, right? The author of Hebrews did not think that. Yeah. So I think if we're reading charitably, we could give a, a slightly different sense of temptation. So I think that there's a sense of temptation that involves a kind of intentionality and a kind of voluntariness of will where we're tempted by something in the sense that we kind of indulge it in our thoughts, right, or in our hearts, and we feel a pull towards it because we have wicked desires. But I think there's another sense of temptation that isn't sin involving or culpability involving. And that's just at this, there's this lower level that doesn't really involve intention or evil or disordered values, but it's just part of um, what call, what Paul calls our flesh. Yeah. So Paul talks about this kind of war that Christians experience um, after they're baptized and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, where there's like the new, there's the new man, right? That's being renewed day by day. 
but we're also kind of still carrying around the old man, the flesh of Adam. And he describes it as kind of being an alien force, right? He says, I see another law at work in my limbs. So I think we can both from scripture and just in our own experience, we can recognize there's a sense of temptation where it's just a kind of basic like um, pull, but not, or like urge or something like that but not in a way that involves anything sinful. Like it's still like, yes. it's still less than the best. So it's like, it's part of our corrupted flesh, but it doesn't involve us in sin or culpability because there's nothing intense. Yes. I want to piggyback off of that real quick. Looking at Christ's time on the earth, the majority of his, well, actually all of his life, besides when he unveils his true humanity, his redeemed body to um, Peter. And was it one of the other disciples been? Uh, it might have been, who was it? It was either Peter and James or Peter and John. Yeah, the transfiguration. The transfiguration. Apart from the transfiguration and after he rose from the dead, he was in a broken body. He was in the body that we all have, Mm -hmm. that all of humanity has had up until this point, which is a broken body within the broken creation. All of this happening prior to the eventual resurrection of the bodies Uh, the redemption and resurrection of the new creation. So God came into the current creation, the broken creation. So he had a broken body. So when we all are resurrected like Christ at the end of time, we won't experience temptation anymore because we will be in the redeemed body within the redeemed creation. But God came into the brokenness of the creation before the redemption as a man. So, So the idea of God simply coming as a man into a broken body, into the broken creation, that in in it of itself is the complete solidarity. Once God does that, he has solidarity with everything about the brokenness of the world. So another argument you can make and piggybacking off of what you said is that definition of temptation, which means vulnerable to a certain type of temptation, just in and of the fact of living in a broken body. So even the saints of the of the history of the church, the Mother Teresa's, you know, the St. Paul's, they also, just like Paul, you were quoting Paul, they also were living in a broken body. And, and those are some of the people who are probably the most further along in the redemptive process than most people in history. And, and even Paul testifies to not that direct, intense desire temptation, but just that flesh kind of being taken down river in a certain stream when you're going the other way, even though you're being renewed by your bot, your mind and body is being renewed day in and day out. There's still that stream of brokenness that your body is constantly moving toward. So you could argue that that's the kind of temptation that Jesus experienced just by coming down and living in a broken, fallen body in a broken, fallen world. So he's, he experiences all aspects of that brokenness, but doesn't, it still maintains his perfection, but he still deals with the brokenness. You know, he gets hungry, he gets thirsty, he gets tired. There's a difference between, again, sin and just the natural corruption and decay of creation and flesh. Yes. Yeah. And there's, there's actually a kind of a controversy. I just want to say really quick to, to tie this bit up so we can move on to another objection from Torlor here. For the most part in the West, um, theologians have thought that Christ took on an unfallen human nature, but there's always been a minority report, mainly in the East, and also recently, um, well, not super recently, but in the modern period, revived by the, the theologian I mentioned before, T.F. Torrance, that basically said, no, actually, um, we should think that Christ took on a fallen 
human nature. What else? Why else would there be a difference between his current body and the, his his revelation of his physical body in the Mount of Transfiguration? There's clearly yeah, I, I completely agree. Yeah, I, I think I mean, there are reasons why why the the Western tradition, especially the Catholic tradition, ended up kind of being forced into thinking that or theologically, which we can get into on another episode. But I, I agree. I think the idea that Christ had a fallen human nature makes a lot more sense out of Scripture. And I, and I also think it makes more sense theologically based on the topics that we're talking about. And the, this kind of idea goes back to a famous quote in the Church Fathers by um, Gregory Nazianzus, who famously said, the unassumed is the unhealed. Mm-hmm. The idea is that the reason Christ had to take up into himself a fallen human nature is because he had to come in contact, like you're saying, come in solidarity with the corruption because in a mystical way, in the divine nature, come in contact with corrupt fallen human nature, it heals it as it come in contact with it, as he overcomes temptation, the temptation of the flesh throughout his life. When we are united to Christ, we're able to participate in his victory over the flesh. Yeah, okay, so I guess that's the temptation stuff. So so what else, Tori? Bring it, Tori. Okay, so just want to make sure I understood you correctly. So when they say God can be tempted in every way, they mean tempted in the sense that... You mean, when they, say, you mean when they say God cannot be tempted? Oh, no, sorry, when they said Jesus was tempted in every okay. way. Sorry. Okay. You just mean tempted in the sense that he was in um, kind of a physical body that limited his ability to fully desire and manifest perfection in the sense that he's naturally going to desire things to alleviate certain physical discomforts that would still not match the... Y- yeah, deal. but again, e- even there, again, we have to be careful what we mean by desire. There's a more like explicit value reflective sense of desire, but there's also a sense of just like a desire in the sense of just like a pull or an urge. So to give an example, right? So someone cuts you off in traffic or something like that, and you just immediately physiologically have this reaction of like frustration or aggression. That's perfectly consistent with you loving that person and recognizing that, you know, you shouldn't attack that person, right? And you're not ruminating over their harm or anything like that. Um, But it's just like a natural physiological and partially psychological kind of like autonomic reaction. But it doesn't have to reflect like your values. So as long as it's kind of a knee jerk sort of physical reaction, I don't even want to say animalistic, but that's kind of what we're getting at but as long as it's more of an animalistic pull or urge, then that is the sort of temptation. Yes. But anything that would separate us from the animals that could be considered an evil desire or disorder of values, Jesus did not have. No, but I also think that our bodies are different from other animals. And I also think there's not a sharp delineation between what we experience mentally and what we're experiencing physically. Well, so again, I- I agree with that, which, of course, creates an issue with trying to divide the sort of temptation that Jesus had. Well, animalistic desires, just because we're calling it animalistic, doesn't mean exclusively to the animals. It just means natural desires. That that was just what I was calling it, to separate it from, like, having a spiritual flaw. I I just mean something that your body was designed to react, kind of like the flight-or-fight system. Yeah. to react to certain stimuli in the environment. That's what you're saying. Yeah. It's those sort of temptations. It's not. It, well, you also, you also have to understand that the temptations that were brought to Jesus in the desert by Satan were temptations, all of which tried to hit at a, a lesser love or a good. It wasn't none of, I don't, 
correct me if I'm wrong, I could be off base here, but I don't think any of the the individual temptations that Christ experienced in the deserts were temptations to do explicit evil. It was temptation to love and care for people in a lesser degree or a lesser way or in a different way than the high agape love or the highest love of God that he was called to have for us in his ministry on the earth. That's that's kind of what I meant by disordered values. It's not like they're bad in themselves, but they're bad when you have a stronger desire or preference for something above something else. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that, that's kind of what I mean. Well, that's, what, that's what most of the Christian tradition has said evil itself is anyway. Yeah, that's but true. Evil, evil is not a substantial thing. Evil is a privation. It's the yeah. failing to choose goods in the right order. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Let's move on to the next one, guys. All right, Tor. So, so what else? What else do you think people might think is troubling or perplexing about this? Well, now that we can only go downhill from here in terms of uh, you know most troubling to less troubling, there are certain things, and again, I don't know how much theological debate. Well, we probably can have on these, but. Just little things like the idea that um, Jesus could have had a child and the the idea of what that would look like. I, I mean, that, that may not be that relevant, but just you just kind of end up kind of having these weird thoughts that you have to deal with that seem very strange that that could be true of God when he's fully human. Or even the idea that, let's say, you know, he wasn't tempted in the sense that he his values were off, but, you know. But the idea that he, in theory, Jesus could have had a child, not that the divine nature would have been passed on to them, but they're just something seems inherently strange. Not that that's a great argument, but it seems inherently strange, that idea, you know, in a lot of ways that God could truly inhabit um, humanity, or even the fact that he could be like attracted sexually to one of his creations, just things like that. They're just kind of, they kind of have an unsettling way about them. And again, that, that may not be a good argument against them but i think there are thoughts that people have you know what i mean there there are thoughts that people aren't comfortable with and i don't know how you would necessarily resolve those or what big theological issue they bring up other than the fact that jesus being fully man and god you know there seems like there are at least certain aspects of his nature that are at odds with each other even if you know him being man you know fully realizes his love for others there's still other aspects of it that are to some degree at odds or contradictory um, to, to fully be able to do that. And I, I guess it, it just doesn't, it's hard to conceive of him as a Trinity being in perfect relationship with each other while embodying humanity perfectly. Mm-hmm. It right, seems well, like- oh, Brett, what, what, what do you think? Could Jesus have had a child? What a question, man. I've never even thought about that before. I mean, <laughs> would, it, would it be would it be the uh, the the new fourth person of the new quadrinity or something? It would have been me. <laughs> I'm what his child would have looked like. I guess in theory, when we're talking theories, we have to maintain that it's that's not a reality. Oh yeah, I, I am. I know, but we have to really recognize a theory for what it is. Well, I, I guess even if God didn't become a human, you could still propose that theory. Exactly. A theory is missed. It's 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 just an idea. It, it has how, no root in any sort of reality. Well, so. however, we we knowing that God did 
come as man, you know, we can still say that that theory is based on the fact that God can inhabit or become fully human. And that's not something that's, I mean, that's something that, that can't happen. It's not like against his nature. You, you know what I mean? Like, like he can't, you could say God can't sin, but you could say he can become human. So that makes the theory stronger than just the idea of, oh, what if God did become human? You know, like once one thing is possible, you do have the, not all theories, I guess, are created equal is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Him becoming fully human was to show us what full humanity is and anything that falls short of that. He, he wasn't going to take part in, including the idea of giving into sexual desire or procreating that that whole ass that whole idea was not what God came to to reveal. He, he, yes, but, I, but, but it is it is a natural thing that people are going to think, well, if he was human, they're going to start to think like certain things are possible for him. And even just the possibility of that can create a lot of weird questions. Yeah. He has like the let's say the sexual reproduction organs. He has genetics that that he can he could pass, but he may maybe he wasn't able to have a child. You know, maybe that's an incorrect assumption. Yeah, I can see how that can sit a little weird with thinking of those possibilities. I, I guess I would just want to say to answer the question straight up. Yes, it it, it was it, probably it was possible. Like it was physically possible, right? For uh, Jesus to have had a but it was never possible in any universe that he would have ever had one like it's possible physically but it's not possible in the sense that not something he would ever do. it's not possible for him to ever have the choice so maybe as long as that's there as a blockade it doesn't maybe. the physical possibility doesn't matter maybe maybe it is metaphysically possible but it's not it's not what he chose to do um, but I guess the but I guess the weirdness is just on the idea of like what would the would the child be like half God or not? And you know what I mean. Um, and I, I guess based on the tradition, we'd have to say no. Hercules. Yeah, Hercules. <laughs> I think I think the child would just be uh, just human. Yeah, just human. And and I think the reason for that is because God is a necessary being, and God is necessarily triune or tripersonal. And so, if we say that the the, the you know, theoretical child of Jesus also had a divine nature, then we'd have to say that God is not essentially triune, but depending on what God chooses to do in the universe, there might be yeah. indefinite number of divine persons. We also go back to where he came from. He came from a, just a fully human mother and Mary. But he didn't have her, well, we don't know if he had her genetics because he was born of a virgin. So it's hard to say like what his genetic makeup was. But aren't we all children of God anyway? Some are just more ch childlike than others. It's true. Um, well, let's let's bring it back for a second. You know, sitting in that tension of maybe some of these weird possibilities. Sitting in the tension of Jesus Jr. <laughs> <laughs> Would you rather have a God who was totally removed and distinct from the human experience and removed from what it feels like to be a human and what our experience is? Would you rather have a, a God who is completely other? Or would you, would you rather have a God who comes into solidarity with humanity? But we don't want to compromise anything. What do you mean? Yeah. Well, the would you rather have this or that seems to imply that there's some level of compromise being had. 
No, what I'm saying is I think you going back to the definition of agape love, you know, self-sacrificial other-centered love. I feel like almost a natural consequence of that love is is this idea of solidarity and complete empathy in our experience. I think that's just where the the natural conclusions eventually end up when you're talking about the type of love that God is. I agree, but there are maybe other aspects of his nature that we still have to consider and make sure that everything is coherent, everything is aligned. Nothing yeah. goes against anything else. Yeah, and, and we must remember that, the just taking the lens back a little bit further again, that the idea of the incarnation is a mystery and will forever be a mystery. There's no clear-cut answers or there's answers, but there's no, this is going to resolve and, and make everything mentally and rationally make perfect sense. Uh, anyway, Tor, what, what else you got? Uh, oh my goodness. Okay. I'll think. Give us, give us the a contradiction, not just something troubling, but something where you might be like, listen, there's just a contradiction, right? Between a certain divine property and a human property. How could someone have both? Well, this this isn't a contradiction. This is just a thought. Thanks, Tori. I just demanded a contradiction. You said, well, I have something for you, but it's not a contradiction. Because there's no contradictions. You can't, <laughs> you can't deny the incarnation, man. My mind's already on one track, so I'm going there. Okay. Just roll with it then, Tor. Would the perfect relationship between Jesus and God, or the Trinity, I should just say, would that have to be disrupted for Jesus to become fully human in the sense that Jesus didn't know everything God knows Jesus, in certain ways, fell short uh, in this, you know, maybe in a more physical way, not in a culpable to sin way, or, or even the passage about God turning his back on Jesus. You know, there's just some sense in which there was more of a separation. Jesus couldn't necessarily fully experience being God while being human. And so he could be fully God, but there was like some sort of, could yeah. there still be a perfect relationship or did there have to be some level of a divide? Like when Jesus was taking on the sins of the world, for example. Yes. Let me say something real quick, though. Just when you said God turned his back on Jesus, that God did not turn his back on Jesus. Jesus was quoting a scripture from the Old Testament of lament of what it felt like. But indeed, God talking about solidarity again, the father was in complete solidarity with the son on the cross, even though Jesus <laughs> felt in a moment that well, I agree. But I guess that's what I mean is more like certain things were not accessible to Jesus that were to God. Right. Does that make it so they were not in perfect union? I mean, it, that it not necessarily may mean that, but I'm just. Well, I think that there, there's a contradiction in the neighborhood here that some people try to point out, which is the idea that Jesus seemed to be ignorant of certain things. Yes. In his life. He himself says he is. He, he says he's ignorant of when the day of judgment will occur. He says only the father knows this. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people pointed this out. This is a classic example of there seems to be a contradiction, right? Because God is essentially omniscient, but Jesus as a man was not omniscient, right? There are certain things he didn't know. There are certain things he was ignorant of. So it seems like one and the same individual Jesus both was and was not omniscient. So that's like a contradiction. I, and th this is just kind of, again, getting at it from a different angle, not necessarily a rebuttal direct rebuttal to that but jesus being the word being the logos being the alpha and the omega we live and breathe and have our being in him so it's not as if that we look at jesus's time on this earth within history there's this timeline of the trinity and the trinity is in perfect union perfect union perfect union 
and then there's a little moment where god becomes a, a human and then all of a sudden they they break the perfection of the trinity in certain ways and then he returns to the trinity and it's like okay we're back to normal and there's this little like dip i don't see it that way and i don't think that the triune god works on this static linear timeline even though he did indeed step into history i think in a mysterious way god has always been coming into the world again we we have our being within jesus so because he's outside um, of time that kind of resolves the issue yeah that, that, that it's almost an timeless. eternal event it's not even though it looks like a linear kind of moment in history event, it's actually the eternal event. Well, in a way, that, that just might make the problem worse because then God is eternally both omniscient and not omniscient. Yeah, I mean, once you go outside of time, that just complicates everything. <laughs> but I mean, it's also a much more incomprehensible sort of scenario, God being kind of outside of time. So I, I'm, I'm more willing to deal with maybe contradictions in that area. Well, honing in on the the nature of the Trinity as well, it is one God, again, but three persons. I don't want to get flogged by David Bentley Hart by saying that. I don't know if persons is the right word, but... Oh, no, it definitely is. Yeah, it is the right word, but th yeah, there's a way that David Bentley Hart hits on it as far as defining the personhood. Well, yeah, he's talking about theistic personalism. We'll get into that in another Yeah, way. anyway, I'm sorry. I just felt David Bentley Hart's breath on the back of my neck. <laughs> anybody who has who goes by their middle name, unless they are JK, oh, not JK Rowling, well, her too, unless they're GK Chesterton or one of those classic, classic authors, uh, C.S. Lewis, if they go by their- Choose your, choose your nuts words carefully, Tori. Then they can get over themselves. Okay? Oh heck no! Hey Tori, easy, easy. No, but 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 big DBH. He he doesn't call it. It's not a DB Hart. It's always David Bentley Hart, which is more pretentious even than having the abbreviation. <laughs> no, I Tori, DBH is demand. Listen, He's, if if Bentley is in your name anywhere, that's not a good sign for you. Um, we, we we need to get you on the David Bentley Hart video train so you can come. If he starts calling himself David Hart, I can get behind it. But if it's David Bentley Hart, I can't. What about Davy Hart 3000? Would that be would be better? At least um, the you would have a sense of humor. <laughs> okay, anyway, going into what the relationship within the Trinity looks like, right? Because again, we're acting like god's ignorant or christ's ignorance of certain things while he was within his time on earth of, of the father's will and what omniscience means from the trinity as a whole and what it means within the three persons of the trinity because you yeah. do have to really make sure that you're honing in on the distinctness of the three persons of the trinity and the the ever giving self-sacrificial love that's always flowing between the three members of the trinity and that perfect relationship does within the trinity that encompass maybe some ignorance from one to the other but as a holistic triune god the idea of omniscience is completely there but within the relationship, there might be some level of ignorance just as far because that's what relationship is in a certain way. A relationship is distinct. But um, I mean, it's not the Trinity is not just in perfect relationship. They should be in perfect union. There should be other ways in which they are. Well, I'm just saying, does that saying. does that necessarily mean that there can be no shortage of knowledge from one to the other? I don't know. Well, I'm just that's I'm why just, I was proposing the question. Is it? Well, is it a contradiction? Is it not possible? Or is it possible that, and also you mentioned the timeless 
So does that mean, like kind of what Ben was saying, that Jesus is always omniscient and not omniscient because he is outside of time. He embodies being the fully human on earth. And he also embodies not like being outside of that. Yeah. Right. Let, me, let, me, let me say a couple of things real quick. Okay. I think that's an interesting suggestion, Brett. So here's a reason, it's a purely abstract reason why one might think that there's some kind of trivial kind of ignorance, quote unquote, between the members of the Trinity. So maybe it's a choice. Yeah. So yeah, there's the whole self-emptying thing. But, but here's just a more abstract reason. So like, it might be that what philosophers sometimes call indexical knowledge is not reducible to any other kind of knowledge. So this is knowledge, like say first personal knowledge. So only I can know that I am Ben. You can know that right from your perspective, you are Ben or Ben is my brother, but only I can have the knowledge that I am Ben. It's irreducibly first personal knowledge. Mm -hmm. There might be a kind of trivial sense in which we could say only the father knows I am the father, only the son knows I am the son, and only the spirit knows I am the spirit. So in that sense, they're all quote unquote ignorant, but not in a problematic sense of each other's first personal knowledge. Of course, that, that's a unique case, but I, there is a classical response, though, to many of these sorts of contradiction charges, I think, as an Aquinas and some other uh, theologians which is just, listen, because of the uniqueness of Christ having two natures, where in the usual case, we can just univocally predicate properties of a person. In the case of Christ, because of this unique situation, uh, technically, we have to index the properties to one or the other nature. Mm -hmm. So basically, what we say is that there's not a contradiction, because it's not as if Christ is omniscient and not omniscient, full stop. What's actually the case is that Christ is relative to his human nature, not omniscient, and relative to the divine nature, omniscient. And that's not a contradiction. Kind of what I was saying is Jesus being outside of time. There's like a Jesus that is always in union with the Father, and there's a Jesus that's always the divine nature. Human. Yeah. yeah. Right. He's yeah. always human, and, and there's like, um, there are different manifestations that are always. Yeah. And I, I think, know, I think you, see, you see actually this way of talking kind of hinted at in some places in the New Testament. So like in Romans, Paul says, uh, he uses the phrase descended from right, Jesus, right, descended from David, according to the flesh, mm -hmm. but shown to be the son of God, right, by the spirit raised in power. I'm paraphrasing something like that. And it seems to be like at least one natural way to read what Paul is doing there is he's basically doing what Aquinas and other theologians have said we should do, which is that whenever we talk about Christ, because he has these dual natures, we always kind of have to index our predications to one or the other. Now, it's true that there is, there's also a danger here because although there are two natures, there's one person so it seems kind of odd because again it usually when we ascribe a property we're like ascribing it to the person like a person believes something or is this way or is that way we're not like relativizing it to an aspect of the person but again that might just be because it's a mystery and it's without precedent yeah so yeah i mean christ is the only individual in reality that has two natures right everything else just has one nature yeah. The incarnation is a dangerous idea. And I think that's... Did I hear a teehee from you, Brett? <laughs> oh, you heard a big teehee. And I think that any groundbreaking, earth-shattering truth is dangerous, right? 
And I think when discussing certain things that perceive to be problematic within the, the Christian faith and the idea of God fully becoming a human, we need to think rightly with our logical brains, but we also need to remember that we are thinking about, like Ben pointed out, we're thinking about something that's there's no other example of it. We tend to move toward trying to rationalize the Trinity with how we would think of every other thing that we see in nature or every other person that's ever existed or everything else that we know. So I think that it's no surprise that when trying to understand this idea and understand God in this whole story of the Christian faith, that we're going to have to wrestle with it. You know, I don't think it's any surprise that we're not able to just, oh, yeah, that that makes perfect sense. You know what I mean? We're all limited by our, our, our limited fallen minds. Not to say that we can't get at it, which we can, you know, talking about it being a dangerous idea and. And um, Ben saying there's another example, but I think those are two key things to keep in mind when trying to kind of come to terms with what the incarnation means with, with our mind and with our, yeah. our rational thoughts about it. So can I just say one thing? Yeah. Dangerously. Cheesy. <laughs> um, Dangerously cheesy. Yeah, I, I was actually I was just reading Gregory of Nyssa the other day and his writings on the Trinity. And he was kind of saying this, he was saying a similar thing where he was like, listen, the term God doesn't like denote an essence um, yeah. in, the, in the same, like in an intelligible way, in the same way that like rational animal, like tiger or something like that does. Because he said like the intrinsic essence of God is ineffable. It's this totally ineffable, mysterious, unknowable sort of thing, right? Maybe Heart 3000 hits on that too in his yeah. uh, book. So we only know God by in the East, they say, right, by his energies or just another less <laughs> Eastern way we could say that is we know God by how he relates to creation. So we know God like as creator, as savior, as judge, all these sorts of things. But when we start to think about what God is in himself and his own intrinsic essence, there's always going to be something ineffable about that. And we're just kind of gesturing at it. Yeah. But I do think it's important to to at least be able to give a defense. Uh, Agreed. That basically says, not that, oh, this is exactly how it works, but basically saying, listen, here's something that might, for all we know, might be true. And if it were true, there would be no contradiction. So yeah, that, that this isn't totally absurd. That, that, we that can this... conceive of a reality in which it's not a contradiction, whether or not we'll know the truth for certain. We yes. can say by some angle that it is not an inherent yes. contradiction. Yes. I agree. Yeah. I also want to quickly touch, though, um, you talked about the kind of self-emptying aspect, yeah. which uh, I guess the Greek for that is kenosis right? or something like that. I think so, yeah. And this is what Paul talks about, I think, in Philippians, that Christ emptied himself. And the incarnation was a kind of self-emptying. Yeah. And other people have tried to address this issue of like ignorance and other things in terms of that idea of kenosis by basically saying, when we say the term ignorant, that has like normative connotations, right? Like, like culpable lack of knowledge. But again, there's another kind of sense of ignorance or lack of knowledge that's not like that, but it really just has to do with um, what you can cognitively access. Like, yeah. so, so it's like when you say, oh no, I know the answer to this. It's on the tip of my tongue. There's yeah. a kind of idea of like implicit the knowledge is there. You just can't access it in that moment. That, that's kind of what I meant by there's like 
a division and does that ruin the perfect union not that that knowledge isn't there but there's cut off from access to certain things that was not that's kind of what i meant is is that does that ruin is that go against the perfect union or does is that still coherent the idea that you can even if it's a conscious choice or whatever the idea that that can occur does that disrupt the perfect union and I, would, and I would say again, no, because Christ, as the second person of the Trinity, remains perfectly omniscient. But with respect to his human nature or during his earthly ministry, much of that that knowledge is implicit or not ex- fully accessible, or because because of a self limitation, because mm-hmm. of the self emptying. So it's not as if he lacks knowledge of anything. It's just in the incarnation he empties himself and chooses to limit his knowledge, like you're saying, Brad, again, that for the sake of solidarity to fully participate and also the weakness of ignorance. Um, again, not ignorance in the sense of like culpable lack of knowledge yeah. uh, or finite knowledge, but just in the sense that um, it's practically the same because Jesus doesn't yeah. access a lot of that. Yeah. And I, and again, I think we, we always have to remember that too, that everything that God does is out of love. So anything that we know of God or anything that, that Christ did on the earth or that the Bible teaches the father does, or the Holy spirit testifying every, everything that comes from God is, it comes from love. So I think we have to always keep that in mind when we think about why does God do certain things or why do certain things exist within this reality that all comes from God like we we have to remember that everything that's happened including the incarnation and everything that God does and everything that is in some degree flows from the end all say all which is God's nature of agape I would just like to say for the record, I was never claiming that Jesus was not a willing participant in the lack of knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. I, I was never saying that it was like something that he did not have on a certain level or that know, he know. didn't I, have a choice in. I was just, just trying to address the strongest possible version of the objection. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but even under those conditions, I was saying, does it still, whether or not it was a conscious holistic decision or not co- a complete lack of knowledge, does it still disrupt the perfect union of, of them being one? I think you can argue that it doesn't, but I was just a little clarification. And once again, just, just like in all the other areas, we have to be careful. We have to stop and ask, what do we mean by what we're talking about? So like in this context, we're saying union, perfect union. What do we talk? What do we mean when we say that the Trinity yeah. is perfect? Well, Ben, that's that's kind of a, another thing I was kind of s- slightly introducing to. Oh, okay. Well, do introduce, Tori. Well, I'm not going to, but just in the sense that does it disrupt, like what does it mean to be in perfect union? Yes, guys, I think this is where we get tripped up by our heritage of Western thought. I think a lot of this, the East can Western come Western thought has tripped us up for so many <laughs> okay, listen. So many thousands bad. of years. Bad. Western thought well, is pretty boss. What's problematic? No. What's problematic is Augustinian thought. Yeah, there you go. Maybe I should clarify. And no, I have I'm, nothing I'm against Western like Middle Ages thought. Ages. I have nothing against, against Western thought and what we've inherited. But hey, call it. Maybe it's more saying August Augustinian thought. Maybe it's more more enlightenment thought. But all I'm saying is, is there's nothing wrong with that. But I think, Ben, you constantly having having to, to cut into the conversation, which I think rightfully so, and say, hey, let's define our terms. Let's define what we mean. Let's define what, what we mean by what we're saying. 
I'd and rather make assumptions and talk past each other personally. <laughs> oh, man. I, I think a lot of that comes from our Western inheritance. And I think that it's good to take steps back and define the terms. And I think that's much more maybe something the Eastern way of, of thinking can kind of help us with, you know, the Orthodox Church, the even a lot of the Eastern religions, I think, I think we, correct, that can go ahead. This is correct me if I'm wrong, but they're less likely to strictly define things yes. in their philosophy. They're more likely to keep things a little more, a little more in limbo. Open and, yeah. Yeah. We're, when in the West, we like to nail down exactly mm -hmm. what we mean by this, exactly what this is. And I think living in a certain healthy level of tension can actually open up a lot of doors to getting at answers. I completely agree with that. I guess I would just say, well, first of all, obviously it's my habit because I'm <laughs> a philosopher, but I, I think it, which is better depends on the context. That's true. Yeah. So I, I guess I, I just think when someone is trying to bring an objection and they're basically saying, listen, there's a contradiction here, or they're, they're trying to give an explicit rational objection to a Christian doctrine, in that context, it's never helpful to do what a lot of Christians do, which is what anyone in any religion can do, and just say, oh, it's just a mystery, man. Don't worry about it. No, 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 no. I know that. that. I know that's not what you're saying. I just wanted to clarify that. Yes. I think they both can help each other out, but clear, concise, rational thought is is in, invaluable to the, yes. to the discussion. I think I, when, as a part of religious practice and reflection and meditation, it is important to be open-ended and to embrace the mystery and the ineffability of God and different Christian doctrines. But in a context where yes. you're just trying to defend the, cons the bare consistency of Christianity. Yes, and, and I think because, that's what... Because if someone has the charge that something is incoherent and they're using certain terms, my first question is always, what do you mean by those terms, right? Because depending no, on the time, it might or might not be a contradiction. No, I love that. And I, that's why I thought I think the East can help us. Not that to say the East is going to help us define the terms, but I think you saying and making the move backwards slightly to define, I think, is more of a West, an Eastern maneuver. But then when we're defining the terms, I think the, the Western way of thinking can help us define those terms. I love that we're defining the terms. I and love I that you reminded us to take a step back and define, because I think so many people don't do that. So I, I think that is crazy crucial to these sort of discussions. Go ahead, Tor. I also would like to clarify that none of us think that there's this strong like dichotomy between the East and the West. I mean, yeah. there's certain trends, but I mean, yeah. the idea that, oh, if it's East, it's open-ended and in meditation. The pendulum is always swinging. You know what I found? It's like, it's tough to meet in the middle because people tend, they have this tendency to either swing in one direction to the extreme one direction or the extreme other instead of it's like reactionary live. Know. But I think what Tori is saying too, is that the, they don't contradict. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. A lot of, a lot of people have a kind of, I think I'm not saying you're, you're saying this, but it's a lot of people do um, have it in their heads this kind of false dichotomy between Eastern and Western. Oh, yeah, and I do not believe that. I think that they both can work in harmony with one yeah. another. There's more rationalism in the East, probably, than we often give it credit for. And there's more mysticism in the West. Than That's true. All right, you guys want to bring it home?
Yeah, so I guess I wanted to, I mean, we discussed obviously the ins and outs of the doctrine, the objections to it and so forth, but I wanted to end by throwing out the topic of why or how the hypostatic union is important for the Christian doctrine of salvation. It doesn't just kind of come out of nowhere like, oh, I, I guess it looks like God became incarnate, but it's also connected intimately to how we're saved. Yes, right? his purposes in saving us. Yeah. Yeah. So any thoughts on that? Tor, you want to go first? I confess I wasn't listening. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Thanks. Babe. I got distracted by something else I wanted to say. Okay, what, what were you saying, Ben? Oh, well, what else do you want to say? Well, I thought we were closing up. I, I thought we were doing final thoughts. So well, I had a final me... question, but it's if we're doing something else, then it doesn't okay. matter. What well, let say. me go let me go on Ben. I'll I'll um I'll respond to Ben and then Tor, you can tell us what you're thinking, okay? Okay. <laughs> So yeah, Ben, I think that's a great way to end this thinking of, you know, not just the incarnation as a fact in and of itself, but what is the purpose of the incarnation? You know, it doesn't just, it's not just there just to be there. Like there has to be purpose behind it. There has to be reason because it, it is a move that God made is built into the fabric of his creation of reality. And so I think that that is, it's key to, to remember that there is a purpose there. You know, I, I kind of going back to what I was harking on a little bit earlier in the podcast, but I think that we, you know, we're broken creatures, right? So we are Imago Dei image bearers of God with free will, and we've thwarted that free will. And now we are broken. We are sick to the disease of selfishness, of self-interest of choosing things other than the fullness of life that we can have in God. Paul, we were mentioning Paul saying he, he still feels this urge in his body, even though he's being renewed and redeemed day and out, there's still this kind of brokenness to our, our physical bodies and our minds and the creation as a whole. So we obviously need saving from this. We are in bondage to this selfishness and just living in lower levels of reality than what God has called us to live in which is his own life and living in the same love that God has for us. Where do we go from here? There needs to be, we need to be saved out of this. So that's, I think where the incarnation comes in you know, very importantly and is critical to how we're saved. And going back to what I was talking about earlier, again, God needs to, he needs to go down into our sickness and into our brokenness and bring us up out of that and model what it means to be a fully alive human. He needs to be our compass. He needs to be our savior. He needs to be the one who's testifying and, and, and summoning us to the life that we're called to live in, the original intention of our existence. And I think God becoming a, a, a man does a number of things. I think one of them is, is that solidarity issue. He goes down into our hell. He goes down into our sickness. He goes down into our brokenness, into our selfishness. He goes as far down as you can possibly go. And that means becoming a human being, a person. I mean, I think that makes perfect sense when thinking about God saving us from ourselves. He needs to go as far down as you can possibly go. And that's exactly what he showed us in his life. He came into the world. He lived as a common man. He lived in poverty. He went to, and he went to the furthest degree of human suffering. He went to the cross he died a one of probably one of the worst deaths you can possibly experience. I don't think that's by any accident. 
because God had to go to the nth degree of our brokenness, of our fallenness, of our pain, and re- to, to explode it from the inside and, and redeem us out of it. So I think that's one aspect of the importance of the incarnation. The other one is him modeling the end game of all of this. He shows us firsthand in the flesh what we are all going to be when we eventually are fully redeemed out of our sin. And he modeled what our journey looks like, too, which is dying to self. He modeled what it looks like to, to live a human life of agape love, but he also modeled our all of our journeys, which in a sense is a journey of dying, physical death, but also dying to our sin. And God died the physical death, took sin upon him, and then rose in, in the glorious body. So he modeled all of our journeys, which is death. We all are going to die physically, every single one of us. And dying to ourselves, which is almost even more daunting than the physical death, that can be a scary thing. But then after dying to ourselves, the resurrection of our true self. So that's all of our journey. So he models what the end result is. He models all of our stories. And he also goes into our darkness to save us out of the darkness, which I think those are three keys of the purpose and how important the idea of the incarnation is. Yeah. Those are my thoughts. I'll just add one extra thing to that so then Tori can have her concluding thought she was trying to have. Yeah, I completely agree with all that, Brett. But I also think maybe a fourth thing we could say is, again, drawing more from the Eastern tradition, there's something ontological, ontologically salvific, <laughs> to sound mm-hmm. fancy, that happens in the incarnation. And that like the, the, the incarnation itself begins to affect salvation. And the reason is that, so uh, St. Athanasius uh, has this famous phrase, another early church father, where he says, God became man, that man might become God. And of course, he didn't mean we literally become the Trinity. I really love that quote, by the way. But what he meant is God became... One with us, so we could become one with him. Exactly. So God participated in human nature so that we might, in the words of Peter, become partakers of the divine nature. The fact that God takes up into himself a human nature, right, the same human nature we all participate in, then allows us through being baptized into Christ and being united to him with the Holy Spirit is we're able to participate in the divine nature. And this is also, and this is connected to salvation, right? Because it's in virtue of being partakers of the divine nature that we're able to be immortal, Right? We're able to be raised with immortal, redeemed bodies like Christ is and so forth. So all the gifts of salvation are connected to participating in divinity through being united to Christ. Yeah, no, for sure. I'm glad that you you added that on to, to my thoughts too. Gives some more of the, the complete angles on the purposes of, of the incarnation. All right, Tori. So... What what were your thoughts? How do you want to bring it home for us? It's a question, Brett. If you could go back in time to when Jesus lived and you could watch a moment of Jesus' life, would you rather see him? I think I know your guys' answer. In his one silliest moment or two <laughs> in his most awkward, embarrassing moment? Oh, man. That's a good question, Torlor. Very profound, I know. You know what I would want? I would want his silly Billy moment because I think that's one thing that's lost on us. That that humor comes from the triune God. I, I bet you Jesus is a pretty funny dude. 
you know he was clever enough he said a lot of clever things yeah 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 so i would love to just see that on display like god's god's humor because humor is such a big thing for me you know some of my most joyous times in life are revolve around humor so i would and i think that most people just don't think about that aspect of god even though that's central to almost everyone's life you know that brings them some of the most joy the most joy in most people's lives comes from humorous moments you know yet they 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 rarely think of god in those terms so that'd be my choice i i completely agree with that (laughs) i think i think a lot of the in general a lot of the humor that's actually in the gospels is is lost on people because because they have this idea in their head that jesus is this kind of like removed like sage kind of figure you know like not really fully human mm-hmm. but, but there's a lot of wit and sarcasm and intentional humorous hyperbole like you know, take a fancy example the the camel going through the eye of a needle i, I was just thinking of that <laughs> yeah so a lot of people are like oh like what does that mean is it, is it, it's like it's meant to be a ridiculous, funny image of rich people trying to get into the kingdom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's funny. For sure. Yeah. Give Mark Driscoll one one little uh, tip of the hat for that one. He did. He he used that in his sermon on humor. Oh, really? Yeah, that was his main thing. He hit on was the uh, the idea of. Oh well, I'm sorry. There was that, but his other main one was the plank in oh, your own yeah. eye. Oh, oh yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. So. Tori, have we resolved everything about the incarnation? Do you feel totally at peace with our epic Theobro's answers? One, one last thing that troubles me. If Jesus was fully human, he had a human personality. He can't be an introvert and extrovert at the same time. So the I question is, if God was fully human, does that is it a very high probability that his personality closely mirrored mine? Uh, probably let's actually let's I, save this for another episode so, <laughs> yes we will so, so I, Tori here is uh, an expert on the like union psychology INFJ you know Ian Myers Briggs oh I haven't I haven't looked into that in years yeah that's, but that's Tori you still have that knowledge so we can have it we'll probably have a fun podcast in the future where we'll have Tori help us go through and diagnose um, Jesus's personality type. Or maybe, some the, maybe some of the disciples too. We go into like Peter and yeah. John the Baptist and the others. I think Jesus was pretty much Tori with a beard. So just, <laughs> picture, just picture Tori with a beard and that was Jesus. We already have the, I'm, I'm, that's what I'm trying to get at. He had a personality. He can't, you know, so obviously God would choose to come as somebody like me. That's just kind of my intuition. Yeah. Yeah. Kind yeah. of like, you know, I feel like this, when Jesus speaks to me, he kind of says, you know, I get you a little more than I get everybody else because I was a lot like you when I was on For sure. That's why Tori's just, uh, you know, divinely blessed, you know. she. Uh, I am. I'm uh, what Brett used to call a blessed soul. Yeah, blessed soul. Man, I haven't used that one in a while. I got to bring that one back. <laughs> also, I want to out Brett and say that in his closet, he has um, in a Hey Arnold, a shrine to David Bentley Hart, just like Helga. You know what I do? The DVH is my love. It's it's very fortunate that his last name is Hart because that allowed Brett to do all sorts of creative things with his little shrine. Yes, I am. um, I am. I'm the. I want to be the president of a DBH fan club and just uh, put out a a monthly like like Tiger Beat, but all all DBH pictures (laughs) magazine. You you know. You know who I have a crush on, uh, but just in a particular form. I know who you do. 
No, you don't. It's the early church fathers, but only <laughs> but only in icon form. Oh yeah. You know what what if you went back and they just looked like walking, like they were totally flat individuals and in, like looking like the icons and they literally looked like that. That's the secret, Brett. That's why people do <laughs> flat then. It's because we didn't become 3D until um you know, like late in the Middle Ages. Evolution, man. We yeah. weren't we weren't always we evolved into 3D beings. The whole <laughs> the whole the whole Byzantine period was a very strange period in the, in the history of the world is very very two-dimensional very shiny large foreheads it would have been deeply disturbing to walk around the byzantine reality it, <laughs> it's, it's just a total another world here and then um, from you know the late 1800s till about the uh i guess the 30s everything was in black and white and that's when yep. Colors started to be introduced to the world again. We have uh, we have evolutionized and or evolutionized. I like that better than evolved. We've evolved into uh, three dimensional colored people. You know. Um, all right, guys. Well, um, good discussion. Really, really solid discussion. And and I think this was a good topic that Tori brought to us. And I'm glad we got to hit on it for episode four. And we want to have other people on the podcast as well too. You know, it's not always just going to be me and Ben yapping away. I think bringing in guests from time to time can really help make a much more full dynamic conversation. So we want to do more of this. To to try to have someone that's kind of playing the other side who's thinking how they're thinking and talking, you know, with those serious concerns. And I totally agree. I totally agree. So, all right, uh, theologizers, um, let me say a big thank you again to, uh, the the staple bro benny boy benjamin the big dbh lover 3000 yeah, yeah. Um, and our lovely sister victoria toto yanimoto tor lord the the tory bless sulk we love to have her on and uh, we're gonna have her on again and we'll have our other sister on and other people mom dad friends strangers calvinists who hate our guts you know, we're, we're trying all. to we're trying to get god on the podcast but he's yeah He's not replying. We'll invite we'll invite Holy Spirit. <laughs> you're a reprobate. We're gonna invite Holy Spirit on one of these episodes, but Holy Spirit's a he's crazy gonna, dude, man. He's gonna talk smack about the other two in the of the Trinity. He's gonna he's gonna he's gonna lead us out into the street and we're gonna start testifying for homeless people. You never know what the Holy Spirit's gonna bring, man. I every every time I email God asking him to come on the podcast, I always just get a, a, a very stark one word reply in my email, which is just heresy. <laughs> <laughs> oh man all right guys what we hope you guys have or having a good life a good day whenever you're listening to this podcast um we really appreciate you taking the time theologizers for checking in and and hearing what we have to say so we will bid you farewell and we will see you on the next episode Adieu. Bye. this is the theo bros podcast